Welcome to Sounds Familiar, a podcast where we discuss two pieces of media that share themes, plot points, or overarching ideas. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram to keep up to date with our upload schedule, news, and discussions. Take your seat, grab your popcorn, and silence your cell phones now. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to Sounds Familiar. My name is Caleb, and whoever removed the L from the motor pool sign, ha ha, we're all very amused. I'm Stephanie, and uh, you are a scholar, are you not? Judging from your diminished physique and large forehead, you are suited for nothing else. Ouch. (laughs) That was directed at you, Caleb. (laughs) I'm Justin, and was I ever dancing with an android named Lupe? No! (laughs) You had to pick that one. I did. Oh I don't know why you hate that line so much. I, 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 it doesn't make... Okay, where does it come from? What, it's not to, from anything. Wait, it sounds like he's it should tr- be... He said he's, he can't remember if his memories are of his life. So that's just a specific it, event. It feels like it should be a reference to something. And the fact that it's not makes me even angrier. <laughs> okay. So uh, I in, well. case, in case you didn't recognize that quote... Tonight uh, we're discussing Atlantis the Lost Empire and Treasure Planet. Yes, uh, Disney's early 2000s foray into sci-fi, sci-fi, fantasy, action adventure, action adventure, the uh, the voyage narrative, perhaps. And these two movies uh, are what helped to kill the animation studios of Disney. So that's fun. Uh-huh. <laughs> Partially that's... Disney's own fault. Yeah. Okay. There's Treasure the... Planet's failure is Disney's fault. There's history to this. Um, which we're not going to be diving into because there are other people who have already done all that work and made some excellent YouTube videos that we will be linking to in the description. Mm-hmm. Um, so first up, we are discussing Atlantis. Atlantis came out first. Mm. Um, this movie has a ridiculous cast. Okay, Michael J. Fox is the lead. James Garner, Leonard Nimoy, uh, Jim Varney in his final role. Um John Mahoney, David Ogden Steers. It's just a outstanding cast. Um, a surprising, surprisingly diverse cast of characters. Um, mm-hmm. Like just running the entire gamut of age ranges and ethnicities. It's mm-hmm. quite impressive for a Disney movie. <laughs> yeah, this is probably, probably the most... Uh, diverse cast of a Disney movie, like an animated Disney movie I can think of. Um, and with a surprising amount of uh, both non-white and female characters, like, um, yeah. Yeah, do- there's a lot of female characters, too. Yeah, it doesn't get um, a lot of credit for that, but, yeah, I, I remember when I first saw it, I was like, wow, this is really cool. I really like this. Uh, what what are our experiences with this movie like? Uh, was this our first time watching it? Uh, longtime fans... I owned it on DVD uh, as a kid and watched it dozens and dozens of times. I didn't see this movie till I was a teenager. I actually didn't see it as a kid, but um, 
I was a huge fan immediately. Um, I believe Caleb was the one who introduced it to me. Um, I didn't really know that much about it, except for the fact that I had seen like the toys at McDonald's and I thought they were really cool looking. <laughs> and I really wanted uh, Kita's crystal necklace and Which I never got I it. Had. Yeah, well, that's fine. You just lived the childhood <laughs> that I wanted. It's cool. The To make it light up, you had to push the button so hard that your thumb hurt and it left the imprint of the button on your finger. Well, that's <laughs> less cool, but you know. Good, you earned it. Yes. <laughs> Justin? Uh, this was my first time seeing the film. Um, I don't know why it took me so long to watch it. The subject matter is right up my alley, and um, I always thought it looked really cool, which Caleb informed me that's because it's based on one of my favorite comic uh, artists of all time, Mike Mignola. Uh, you guys will know him as the creator of Hellboy. Um so I really dug the aesthetics, and I've always uh, enjoyed the subject matter. But did I enjoy the film? I don't know. Let's get into it. <laughs> mm, yeah, let's get into it. All right. Set in 1914, the film tells the story of a young man who gains possession of a sacred book, which he believes will guide him and a crew of mercenaries to the lost city of Atlantis. <laughs> that was the Wikipedia yeah, that's intro. The, yeah. So... <laughs> The movie opens with the a retelling of, not a retelling of, but showing the audience, the legend, what happened to Atlantis before it disappeared, which is an interesting choice. Yeah. Most movies about, about a lost civilization, you have to wait until the very end what happens, but this one's much more about the journey, because just right off the bat, we find out what happened to Atlantis. Um, my first note is, uh... Flying shark vehicles, very cool. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, all their vehicles look like various marine life. Um, it, it's not really clear what happened. Doesn't he say, like, he was using uh, Atlantis's power to, like, wage war or something like that? Yes, and, like, the very end of the movie, and so I think the crystal was upset with that. <laughs> yeah, and then it was just them. like, fuck you guys, I'm sending in a giant wave. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, my second note is, once again, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yes. Which is once more uh, what we have here. Real quick, does anyone know who he was waging war with? The Greeks, I can only assume, but the okay. movie doesn't say. I, we really don't know. I was just wondering if I missed something. The other, uh, the other seafaring civilization that uh, we don't they, they know what happened the, they to. They were at war with the Phoenicians. Yeah, apparently. Um, so a massive tidal wave triggered by a distant explosion uh, threatens to drown the kingdom. The the king and queen and their daughter, Kida, are trying to run to safety somewhere. And the crystal, like, shines down on Kida's mother and takes her away. And then it, like, fades to black as the island sinks beneath the ocean. Yeah. Um, it's this... It's like a... I well, I want to say dramatic opening. I was gonna say it's like a yeah. dark phoenix thing, but it's not really because when the crystal like uh, uh, possesses you, you can't really do anything, which we're gonna get into a little more later. Some of our thoughts. Um, I mean, now that you mention it, it is pretty phoenixy. Yeah, well, it's just kind of like uh, it's like a woman getting possessed by this cosmic force, um, but it's not. I don't think the movie ever makes it really clear like what that means or like what why that happens it's only right. kind of vaguely the, the king just kind of says that it does happen yeah like in times of trouble the crystal needs a host 
Right, but why does it need a host? We, we don't know. Yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that's the cut, intro. Cut to 1914. Milo Thatch is working as a linguist and cartographer at the Smithsonian. He believes that he has found the location of the Shepherd's Journal, a book that will point him to Atlantis. Mm-hmm. This is where we're introduced to Milo, voiced by Michael J. Fox, who I love. He I could listen to is his voice. My boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> I love him. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, look, he. There's not that many Disney characters that are that similar to Caleb. <laughs> which, which is a compliment, Aww. by the Aww. way, not an insult. <laughs> I'm not scrawny enough. <laughs> well, yeah, but you are nerdy and adorable enough. I apparently, have a giant forehead. Um, <laughs> Milo giant. is following in the steps of his grandfather, who is also trying to find Atlantis. Milo is trying to pitch uh, an expedition to yeah. the I don't know the board of directors of the Smithsonian. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is denied. He is a struggling academic, which is a trope I am always fond of because I relate <laughs> to that. Um, yeah, so he is uh, denied the uh, funding that he seeks. And they basically all see him as kind of like a crackpot, like head in the clouds. He doesn't really know what he's doing. His grandfather would be ashamed of him. Um, so all the guys take off, and he's kind of left alone. He uh, he goes home despondently, but uh, this is where his fortunes turn around. Yeah, fortunes for him, there's a sexy lady waiting in his apartment. <laughs> and not for the reason you think. Um. <laughs> Helga is working for a mysterious benefactor that she takes Milo to to his place mm-hmm. to meet this mysterious man, which I love the way Helga builds him up, makes him sound just this <laughs> scary, intense man, um, like answering short, complete sentences, uh, you will refer- address him as sir, et cetera, et cetera. And then he's just this goofy old man doing yoga in his underwear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she oversold it a little bit. but who, uh, Mr. Uh, Preston B. Whitmore, who is uh, voiced by... What was it? Ah. Uh, who is voiced by John Mahoney of Frasier fame. A lot of Frasier actors in Disney there movies is, at this time period. Uh, David Hyde Pierce is in Treasure Planet, another one of my favorites. And uh, Kelsey Grammer was uh, in Toy Story 2. He was Stinky Pete. Yes, you're right. Ah, nice. Um, so he wants to, he knows about Milo's troubles and... Uh, turns out they already found the Shepherd's Journal, so Milo's just been doing all this work for nothing. Yeah, a whole portion of this adventure <laughs> just gets done without Milo or us ever seeing it. Because the um, Mr. Whitmore is not only a friend of Milo's grandfather's, but apparently he's just some rich guy who likes to fund uh, treasure hunting expeditions. And he's already built a team, and they need Milo because he's the only linguist who could or would do the job. Um, um, I like this scene where um, he's convincing Milo uh, yes. to quit his job and go on the journey. And there's that thing, like him listing all the back and forth. That he needs to stay. And, uh, he's like, my job, you already quit. My apartment, taken care of. My cat. And then it gets to the cat and that killed me. <laughs> yeah, one of my notes about this scene that actually pertains to the whole movie is that everyone talks so goddamn fast. Like, to the point where it's almost a criticism, because, like, the talking is so fast, you're like, whoa, hold up, like, and you're trying to follow it, and it feels very, um, Joss Whedon-y, uh, 
Uh, well, here's the thing. Yeah. He was one of the guys who worked on the script. He was literally he inescapable, inescapable. <laughs> from the, the late 90s to, like, the late 2000s to early 2010s. Yep. Um, I, I like- mean, to be fair, I think the, the dialogue is really good. Um, it's just that it's so rapid fire. It almost feels a little up its own ass. Yes, the first time I watched this movie as subtitles with an, as an adult, I was like, why didn't I watch this with subtitles yeah. as a kid? Like, the, the first time we meet Mole, and he's, like, saying a bunch of things, like, he's examining the dirt under Milo's finger, fingernails, and he says a bunch of stuff to the dirt that he keeps in his bed, and I never picked up any of it. Subtitles. Duh. Yeah. Da-doy. That being said, I do I do really like the script. I think it's quite uh, sparkling, and I very much enjoy re-watching it, because I notice new stuff every time. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's a strength, ultimately. Yes. Um, I also like the coelacanth that are in Mr. Whitmore's aquarium. I think that's a that's a good yes. cool fish for a treasure hunter to have, <laughs> yes. um, and then so with the teams already built, um, we just jump straight into the. So both of these movies are different forms of retrofuturism. Hmm. Yeah, because the standard way of thinking of retro retrofuturism is like nineteen fifties style, but like sci-fi aesthetic mm-hmm. like the like the Jetsons. Mm-hmm. Um I'm gonna use that term to apply to both of these because they're still the a past time period but with sci-fi benefits. Um they're just different time periods and different amounts of you know advanced technology. Yeah I guess my my kind of uh, uh loose explanation is this movie and what you usually think of retrofuturism is um old times but with sci-fi aesthetics yes. yeah Treasure planet is sci-fi with old timey i really right. like that too. this one this one is very um steampunk yes mm-hmm. um they both are to well, an extent the, yeah. they're, they're different types of steampunk um they actually the design aesthetic going to treasure planet was they wanted it 70 percent victorian 30% sci-fi. Yeah. So every single thing that they build, they wanted to keep that kind of ratio to make the world feel consistent. Right. And I think, yeah, the the Victorian uh, aspect is definitely present. Well, it's Victorian in Treasure Planet, and then in um, Atlantis, it's more... Pre-World War One. Yeah, like... Very uh, immediately pre World War One. We we have we are doing a lot of movies All set in this time place. period because uh, there's a lot of great stuff to mine there. But um, but yes, I think that in this one the aesthetic also is a little bit different because uh, it transitions from this very techie world to kind of the very different world of Atlantis, which yeah. also is techie but like kind of in a very different way. I don't it's know techie in the way that Asgard yeah. is. Yes. Yeah. Um, Science um, magic. Uh. The aesthetic of the time period is persistent throughout because, like, all of the men, all of they all wear the same army green, mm-hmm. like, standard issue tank top and, yeah. like, cargo pants. That's true. I liked that because that, I don't know, that was a good detail, I thought. Okay, so. So we're in the sub. We meet the, we meet the whole team. I love the cast of supporting characters mm-hmm. in, in this movie. They're all great. Rourke, Helga, Mrs. Packard, Cookie, Sweet, Mole. <laughs> How do you remember all the names? <laughs> I'm only missing two. Um, the mechanic. The, the whomst? So, hang on. <laughs> the whomst. <laughs> let's, let's just put a pin in that real quick. Audrey. Yes. Oh, that mechanic. Okay. When you said the mechanic, I honestly didn't know who you were talking about. <laughs> Audrey and Vinny. Yes. Okay. And they are all great. I think we, we get just enough of each of them. 
Um, I think the movie does a really good job of building up the team dynamic and fleshing them out as characters without using them too much. Like, Mole. You could easily have too much Mole. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, So, uh, I thought, um, not having seen this movie, I thought Vinny... Uh, was gonna have a bigger part than he did and that's only because this movie came out when i was nine so the main thing i remembered from the trailers was the guy who was like i make stuff go boom (laughs) (laughs) that would catch a nine-year-old's attention i'm sure (laughs) so apparently this was another example another case of the actor was so good that a lot of the time the in the VA booth, they just say, okay, so here Vinny talks about his childhood, and go. <laughs> and he just improvised that whole story about the exploding Chinese laundry. That's a lot of pressure, <laughs> but he did pretty well. Um, okay, so, blah, 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 we're sailing, we're sailing. Another note I would like to make real quick is that the aspect ratio of the film is in the cinemascope, hmm. um, which hmm. is trying to give the movie an old-timey adventure film uh, feel, in the just in the aspect ratio. Hmm. I don't even know what that is. Another interesting fact about this movie is that it is in uh, the cinemascope aspect ratio, uh, which was a decision they made to try and make the film feel more reminiscent of classic action-adventure movies. Ooh, nice. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, So we meet the team. We're in the sub. Right? Not missing anything important. (laughs) No. We were underwater, and Milo has the Shepherd's Journal, finally, and he's... Uh, he's reading the directions when they are attacked by a giant lobster machine. Uh, Vinny says, "With that, I would think I would have a white wine." Um. <laughs> it's very medley though, so it might be um, a little crunchy. We get uh, some great comedy with Mrs. Packard, where she's like on the phone with a gal pal of hers. She's like, "Mom, honey, I don't think he's coming back." And meanwhile, they're all like screaming and running around. Yeah, hold on, I gotta go. Meanwhile, men are getting locked behind bulkheads and drowning to death. Oh yeah, that's fun. Um, so the big, the big lobster uh, machine monster. Um, I have a note that I said a lot of the. Um, 3D that's supposed to kind of be seamless with 2D. Uh, in this movie, that technology seems to have aged a lot better than it did in most movies from this era. Yeah, and I don't know if that's just because of um, like the artists they got the uh, design inspiration from, or just a uh, different type of technology they used. I'm not sure, but I I was ready to cringe uh, at some bad 3D, but it was actually it was pretty solid. Yeah, they they did man- they did manage to make it blend pretty well. Yeah, it's an interesting thing about both of these movies. Um, so, for Tarzan, Disney created this technology called called Deep Canvas, which was how they did all the scenes where like Tarzan was vine surfing, um, <laughs> where they would they would digitally create these environments and then give them to the 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 animation guys and then they would draw the hand-drawn characters on top of it so atlantis and treasure planet both do that while combining in individual cgi elements in addition to that um like the ship the whole ship in atlantis and treasure planet is is deep uh deep canvas technology nice yeah and you can kind of see that too sometimes when they're running around it very much has that same kind of visual effect as uh in tarzan yeah you're like this isn't this isn't quite right. But, um, <laughs> but it kind of works. It's a stylistic choice that I like, I think. Yeah. 
So we lose the main sub and most of the crew. Yeah. And pop up in the uh, Under. grease trap underwater. And they make it to the underground highway. So they're escaping in those tiny little escape pods. And then, like, in the next scene, they're unloading all these trucks in a giant drill. Uh, where were they? I was just wondering where they came from. <laughs> no one knows. <laughs> so they're traveling along this uh, ancient underground highway and end up running into all of these problems. Vinny has to blow stuff up. Mole has to dig through something. Uh, everyone doesn't... Nobody, nobody likes Milo. Um, yeah, he, why he, doesn't anyone he, like him? He begins to endear himself to them um, because by, you know, fixing Mole's digger yes. and telling I, stories. I think at... They think he's, like, scrawny and useless. Yes, it's a combination of him being initially useless, but also I think it's because they don't know if they can trust him because everyone in the crew is kind of in on this. Yeah. And Milo has not been told anything. Mm. Um, because I'm pretty sure his, his, his grandfather was what they would call an idealist, so they're probably worried that he is too. So oh, yeah, kind of he, get, he gets fringes. idealist thrown at him as an insult a yeah. couple times in this movie. Which is something, but yeah. Uh, we get the literal fireflies, which... Yes. <laughs> hey. Yes, that burn up the camp. Oh, but um, not until... not Sorry, not before the... Campfire. Uh, the campfire bonding trope, which is a favorite of mine. And that's when <laughs> all the characters have to go on a camping trip and they learn about each other. And they yes. share their backstories, and there's the one guy who doesn't really want to share his backstory, but then he gets his backstory shared anyway, <laughs> or something like that. I found myself that boom. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, this is where we kind of get to know all the characters, and they all sort of talk about themselves, and it's, yeah, it's a very, uh, honestly, for a Disney movie, a very character-focused scene. I mean, not that Disney movies aren't yeah. good with characters, but they don't usually go this in-depth into, like, side characters, I guess. No, yeah. you're right. Um, so, yeah, I really like the scene. My next note, I don't... I think I wrote it down approximately here, was I'm sad we never got a Spider-Man uh, voiced or portrayed by Michael J. Fox. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, big bummer. He has the <laughs> he has a perfect Peter Parker voice. Caleb has a lot of opinions about what constitutes the right kind of Peter Parker voice, and I still haven't quite nailed it down, but I guess we can surmise that Michael J. Fox would have been a really good one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things that, like, you can't pinpoint, but when you know, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. He does have a very lively voice, which works very well for for this movie. So after their trials and perils, they eventually reach the, not the entrance to Atlantis, but they bust their way through a hole in the wall onto a cliffside where they can see Atlantis. And they are met by Kida, the princess, and several other Atlanteans. Yeah, they're wearing these giant mask things, which in my notes I wrote, how much must those things weigh? Because, <laughs> like, they, they're like they're kind of like shields, but I'm not really sure how they attach to the body. But they, they look like masks, but they cover basically, like, the entire front of your body. So I don't really know how that works. Yeah. It's either really lightweight wood, or not only can they live forever, they're also super strong. Yeah, they're basically superhuman. Uh, fortunately for oh. us, all of the Atlanteans can understand English. Oh, yes, this... <laughs> This contrivance the, here. The, the Atlantean <laughs> language is the basis of many existing languages. But that doesn't mean they should be able to... This is <laughs> so, uh, this is a crazy, like, convergent evolution yeah. thing here. 
two two quick things. Um, before everyone meets the, uh, the Atlanteans, um, Milo uh, has that scene where he's chasing Kida, and that's where we learn that Milo is surprisingly agile. Yeah, yeah. He might be scrawny, but like, he's not a wimp. <laughs> yeah, I was surprised he could keep up with them because they were like pole vaulting and stuff. And the uh, the first uh, the first time we realize that the Atlanteans can speak a human language is um, when uh, Mole is speaking French. And Kida picks up on it. And he's like, voulez-vous coucher avec moi? <laughs> and she gets We don't know, smacked. but we can infer. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. the The language thing is very hand-wavy, but it's still not as hand-wavy as in uh, Pocahontas. <laughs> when <laughs> the... What was it? The magic of the trees? Uh, yeah, it's something like um, when her and uh, John Smith like join hands and he's like, Listen with your heart, you will understand. And like the sparkly leaves go everywhere, and then they just start talking to each other, and they understand <laughs> what they're saying. Um, actually, I can't, un- I can't decide if that's better or worse than this because this one actually tries to rationalize it, but it still doesn't make a lot of sense. The other one is just like, <laughs> it's the power of love and magic, bitch. <laughs> like, so. <laughs> Oh, slap that on a fucking t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Disney could make so much money if they were willing to tarnish their image just a little bit. Disney made a surprising decision in the casting of uh, the actress who voices Kida. Instead of going with some big famous person, they actually hired a voice actor. Uh, she voices number five in Codename Kids Next Door. She was Susie Carmichael oh, in awesome. Rugrats. Um, she was in my life as a teenage robot. She has 360 credits to her name. So n- normally in big movies like this, it's not it's not often that an actual career voice actor gets a lead role. Like Jim Cummings is in this, but he's not one of the main characters. Yeah, that's yeah, that's gotta change. It really does because you can sometimes, well, a lot of times you can tell when they just got a famous person for a movie because yeah. they're just kind of saying things and you're like. Mm, no. <laughs> like I, like with Scoob, why did they pick a bunch of famous people when they're like you know, Great Isle has been voicing Daphne for twenty years. This only one man has ever voiced Fred. Okay, <laughs> the, <laughs> don't you dare take anything away from Frank Walker. <laughs> yes, Frank Walker has been voicing Fred since the original Scooby Doo series, and they got someone I don't know who to voice him in Scoob. I haven't seen Scoob. Moving on. So it, we the, we meet the king. The king doesn't want any outsiders. They have a strict no outsiders rule. And Rourke convinces him to let them stay overnight to refresh and resupply. Meanwhile, Kida uh, takes Milo. <laughs> well, he goes to find her to and ask her questions. And then she gets the drop on him and says basically the same thing to her. That she has a bunch of questions and she wants answers. Somehow... Uh, uh... Yes, Justin. <laughs> Sorry, I was just gonna say we glossed over the part where, um, when, after they realize that the Atlanteans are still alive, um, oh, Helga has that moment where she's like, "This changes everything," and Rourke's like, "This just changes nothing." Yes, in his like super, super, overtly foreshadowed heel turn. <laughs> yeah, um, that's where it's solidified. That's true. Yeah, like. Rourke doesn't seem very evil at the outset, but you're not that surprised when he 
turns out to be because right. he gives a uh, big Republican vibes. Yes, um, and James Garner <laughs> gives a great performance as Rourke. Yes, yes, he does. He's excellent. Um, yeah, I really like him as a villain because uh, he feels very real, but in in a still a fun Disney way, but in a like, yeah, this is definitely a real person kind of way. Yes. Um, Back to Keita and Milo. Yeah. <laughs> Back to the fun stuff. Somehow, the Atlanteans forgot how to read their own language, yeah. even though <laughs> most of the people currently living in the city of Atlantis lived there when the city sank. This is... How do you forget how to read when you are surrounded by your own language and writing? And they also still speak it. Like. Yes. I, I, I don't... Yeah. This yeah. is um, this, this is, is supremely hand-wavy bullshit. Well, they and need a white guy I, to explain it to them. Exactly. That's what happens. Milo shows up and is like... And Akita's like, I can't figure out how to start this car. And Milo's like, did you try putting a key in it and turning it? <laughs> like, I never would have thought of that, even without the writing. <laughs> Oh, oh my god, I thought that was so stupid. I was like, there's no way they haven't tried that yet. Okay, while we're dunking on stuff related to the Atlantean language, the fact that Milo uh, makes a big joke out of not being able to pronounce Kadakakesh when he oh is a linguist. God. He is a linguist! He knows the language. That one made me so angry. It's... Uh, it would have made sense if literally any other character said it, but it does not yeah. make sense for Milo to say it because he is like the one person who would actually have a big appreciation for this and would be like, oh, oh, sure. And he would like carefully sound it out and he would call her that all the time to the point where it would be annoying and she would be like, just call me Kita. Like, <laughs> so it does not make sense. It makes me so mad. Anyway. Uh, one more nitpicky thing about the language. Uh, so... They speak Atlantean to each other, then the humans come in, and then when the humans leave, they keep speaking English to each other. I, uh, I just thought it'd be kind of cool if they spoke their own language throughout it. If you took the time to develop it, why not like show it off? Yeah, like there's one scene where Kida is trying to convince her father of something, but I think they even they might even switch back to English halfway through that scene. I don't recall. I. I guess when I was watching those scenes, I assumed it was the kind of thing where, like, sometimes if we're watching a movie that's set in a in a country where they don't speak English, they will be speaking English to each other, but we're meant to understand that they're actually speaking their own language. Right. We're just it's, seeing it as English. it's very Hunt for Red October. Yeah, but um, that being said. Uh, yeah, I was a little surprised that they didn't speak in their own language more, but maybe the writers were also like, we don't really trust ourselves to come up with a whole language, so we're yeah. just not going to do that. Well, they did. <laughs> they did come up with a whole oh, language. They, they hired the guy who created Klingon for Star Trek. Mm. Um. Anyway, so back to Milo and Kida again. My next note is, this movie is very thirsty. <laughs> 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 this, this movie is quite horny. <laughs> Um, he loved to see it. Um, what What are you thinking of specifically? I, it was just the Keaton and Milo scenes. I don't remember what it was. Was it the the I swim pretty girl pretty pretty good scene? I don't remember. Probably yeah, when she is like undressing. Yeah, it's the thing. Um, and uh, yeah, the Milo's not the only one who's horny for her, but still, <laughs> there's. Uh, there is a lot of horniness going on. Also, I had a note way back when Helga appeared that there were just saxophones in the background, like, for no reason, <laughs> except that you know why. Um, oh, I thought those were just in my head. Yeah. <laughs> the, 
Uh, but yes, very horny in a respectfully horny right. way. <laughs> I am looking respectfully. Um, what were we saying, Caleb? Kida needs Milo's help translating this giant mural that's somewhere half a mile underwater. How did she find it? I don't know. Mm. How do they hold their breath this long? How do they swim that far? It's infuriating. Anyway. No, no idea. So Kida is hoping that this mural will illuminate what happened to her mother all those centuries ago when her mother was taken by the crystal. The audience would also like that. (laughs) And Milo is hoping that the mural will explain what is missing or what is on the missing page from the Shepherd's Journal that Rourke has. They read it. Milo Milo learns about the crystal. They return back to the surface. And the entire crew has done a heel turn. That's mm-hmm. waiting there for them with guns. And Kida immediately draws a knife and lunges at some dudes. <laughs> yeah, she was love it. My first, or my note here is, I support Kida's rights to stab whoever she wants. <laughs> <laughs> she was about to, too. She was about to Yeah, cut a until bitch. Rourke shot uh, the knife out of her hand. Yeah. Kida has more than earned Wolverine rights. <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of a surprising turn from the crew. Well, turns out, yeah, they were in it for the money, at least so it would seem. Right. The map, or the missing page, tells them that the heart to Atlantis lies in the eyes of her king. That's a paraphrasing. So they go to meet the king, and he refuses to give up the location. And does Rourke, does Rourke punch him? Yeah. yeah. Rourke, we don't really Rourke, see Rourke it, punches but... an 8,000-year-old man. And it pretty much <laughs> kills him. It's dark. Oh, yeah, it does cut Uh, away on that one. Yeah, uh, it hit him so hard it caused internal bleeding. Oof. Is what uh, we find out later. Oh, jeez. Okay, so we descend to the treasure chamber with Rourke and Milo, Kida, and Hoga. And there's the crystal surrounded by floating masks representing the face of Atlantis' past kings. And Kida is taken by the crystal. She just um, kind of like the, just what was she? I think she, she well first she falls down and starts praying, and then I think she recognizes like the presence of her mother in it, and she yeah, starts she to walk towards it. She does get up and start going towards it. It's not like the crystal and, just grabs her, right? And this is but, a great scene yeah. where James Newton Howard just goes off. My man does a great job with this score. Yeah, the score is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and um, she walks toward it. This like magical music starts playing. Um, there's this very whole anime scene where she, like, uh, rises into the crystal, like, does a spin around, like, transforms into a glowy person. Um, yeah, I, I wrote, I love Sailor Moon slash Super Saiyan Kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what's happening here. And she comes back down. Oh, so as she's walking away, she turns back to Milo and says, in Atlantean, be not afraid, Milo Thatch, all know, will be well. Great. And... Rourke is like, what did she say? He's like, oh, I didn't catch it. Yeah, he doesn't even tell him. <laughs> Kita comes back, but then she just allows herself to be taken. This is another one of my nitpicks. This is where is, it starts not making as much yeah, sense. Yeah, so the king tells us that the crystal prote- chooses like a host to protect itself, but the crystal is also su- to, supposed to protect its people. Mm-hmm. So what is it doing? 
why is it is the crystal omniscient? Can it see into the future and it knows this is what must happen for Atlantis to be saved? Why isn't the crystal flying up into the sky and shooting lasers at all of the mercenaries? Well, that's the thing. <laughs> it's like I would understand if the crystal in times of great peril decided that it needed to possess a person so that it could take advantage of a person's ability to uh, enact change on their physical environment, a person's power of will that a crystal I guess can't have right. since it's just unfocused cosmic force, but that does none of that really happens. It just kind of takes a host for reasons. Uh, I'm gonna give this uh, the end game explanation and say that much like Doctor Strange, Kita when she got the knowledge and the power from uh, the crystal knew that there was only one way things could go. Yeah. Um, and so, like, to minimize loss of life and to make sure that uh, the good guys ended up on top. So she went along with it knowing exactly what was going to happen. And that was the only way to uh, make sure things were okay. Yes. But give it that unlike Doctor Strange, none of that is elaborated on. Yeah. <laughs> we don't really find any of that out. It just kind of... Um, one thing that we haven't mentioned is that the Atlanteans re- rely on the crystal for their life force. That's why they're. Why, that's why Kita is eight thousand year eight thousand eight thousand years old. Yes. Um, and if the crystal's removed, the Atlanteans will die. And the entire team, except for Milo, goes to goes to leave with the crystal until Audrey. Right, Audrey is like, uh, fine. She does a face turn and then the rest of the team joins her and by the rest of the team we mean like the supporting characters um all the comedic relief and then <laughs> everybody but um Rourke and Helga, Helga. Yeah. and yeah Rourke, they find their consciences we do but... not cut away on this punch no knocks Milo square in the face and he yeah. he sends him back like um, <laughs> Bruce Lee couldn't punch a guy this far <laughs> 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 I mean, Milo weighs like five pounds, so yeah. to be fair. <laughs> um, so then Rourke and Helga leave with the Kida crystal, and Milo goes to go after them, and there's this great little bit where Vinny goes, wait, and you think Vinny's going to say something important, but then the bridge blows up, and then it cuts back, and Vinny goes, okay, you can go now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... so on the bright side, you know, Milo actually has allies now um, because they have uh, gone from their heel turn back to their face turn. Yeah, their turn heel face turn. Yeah, that. Um, <laughs> um, but basically, uh, Rourke and Helga are taking away Kita because Helga says something like, uh, I can think of a lot of countries that would pay anything for, like, the secret to eternal life or something like that because of the um, the crystal. So I guess that's I guess that's their plan. It's just like... Yeah, Milo literally goes on a speech and says something about so, uh, Rourke going to sell it to the Kaiser. <laughs> He's going to sell it to the Kaiser! <laughs> yeah, and apparently they're just going to kick off this universe's version of World War One with ancient Atlantean crystal magic. <laughs> Uh, but but so, um, the king dies of internal bleeding from being punched while being eight thousand years old. Um, he gives his crystal to Milo. Yes. So now the white guy has the king's, uh, you know, by the power of cacacity. By the power of crystals. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, so they have a, a rally. They get all the team together. Yeah, they have a rally. They, Milo they have, teaches they, all the Atlanteans how to yeah, use their own technology. <laughs> right, and I actually put in my notes. Um, I totally forgot there were Atlanteans on this mission because they don't get any screen time. They don't do anything. Nope. Literally, the only Atlanteans that are characters are the king and Princess Kita. Yes, for as much as we were lauding this movie for its representation, <laughs> when it comes to Atlanteans... Yeah, no, that's... Eww. I mean, on the bright side, Atlanteans aren't a, a real ethnicity but on the not bright side they are pretty unambiguously depicted as people of color and as like a you know that kind of yeah but they won't go all the way they won't go all the way because like we'll give them white hair and like blue eyes and stuff yeah that's a whole other topic it's yeah it's got this kind of problematic problematic elements uh, especially when it's like so we're going to depict them as like a a people of color culture, but also not really involve them in the narrative that much. Even, I mean, even, even though it's their narrative, it's their, yeah. it, they are going to die. Right. <laughs> well, even Kita, I put, um, she gets taken out of the story remarkably quickly. Like, especially because I really like her as a character. I think she's very charming and interesting. Um, but she does kind of become. Uh, what what did I describe Brogue as in our X-Men episode? A MacGuffin slash damsel in distress, which is a favorite mm-hmm. <laughs> combined trope of mine. Um, it, w- which is basically what happens to her. Because it's basically like, this woman is super powerful, and that's why the bad guys want her, but also she doesn't ever really use her power f- for anything that she chooses to do. So it's kind of like, oh, so what's the point? But anyway... Um, that aside, uh, th- this is a fun moment because it's a get the team together to fight the bad guys moment. Yeah, there's so the bad guys make it back to the base of the dormant volcano that they fell into before they found Atlantis. And their plan is to blow the top off of the magma cone <laughs> so that they can f- just take a dirigible up to the surface. And my question is, how can they be certain that the surface of the magma cone is above water? They don't know that it's not underwater and just gonna flood and kill them all when they blow the surf when they blow the top. Yeah, that. Yeah, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Moving on. <laughs> so we have a fight in the base of a dormant volcano, which, as far as fight locations go, is pretty cool. Yeah. The heroes and the Atlanteans fly in on their thingies, on their fish, their flying fish. And Milo has this fight with Rourke on the on the blimp. Yeah, Rourke gets turned into a terrifying crystal rage monster. <laughs> that is- oh yeah, and and um, uh, Helga was like the only person who stuck with him, and he throws her off the. Yeah, he, he just, he just, he, my yep. does not care. And then she uh, says, you know what, fine. And then she blows up the blimp. his ass. <laughs> love that. Love I love Helga. Um, um, there's a little detail, so I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty of the fight scene, but so Akita is in this metal box hanging underneath the blimp and it gets dropped. Uh, the explosion of the blimp is setting off the, is, is reactivating the, the volcano, which I don't know if that's how it works. Um, and so Milo is throwing a, cha- a chain, there's a chain from on the top of the box. Milo tosses it to someone to attach to the tail of one of the flying fish. And they could have just, like, thrown it off screen 
and like said that's that we don't have to animate anything and flown off but they actually like include the detail of the chain being wrapped around the tail and then being latched onto itself so actually showing the process of it as opposed to just hand waving yeah. yats on there um they take it back they fly back to atlantis they release Keita from the box and she flies up uh, into the air and react re brings back to life the giant Colossal robot statues, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they another very cool, very Mignola Jack Kirby thing. Yeah. Yes. They they clap a day hands, and the giant force field saves the city from the magma. Mm-hmm. Yay! Woo! The city is saved. Um, and then the Atlanteans award our heroes with treasure. Milo stays in Atlantis with Kida, who are the new queen, and I'm a guessing king. Prince but it's really only address that she's queen, which is the important part anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, the guy married to the Queen of England isn't the King of England. So she's who knows? the queen. He's the guy who's banging the queen. Everybody's happy. Uh, yeah, that's all. <laughs> what higher office could you want? <laughs> exactly. Um, and the rest of the team goes back to uh, the above world. <laughs> rich as kings. Yeah, they are rich as fuck and wearing all their early 1900s finery. Um, and they, what do they, they basically tell Mr. Whitmore that Milo, they tell him that, that he... Milo knows, or Mr. Whitmore knows, he has the photos. He is making sure that they have their cover right, story right, straight. Right, right, yes, yeah. Because they're going to pretend that Atlantis is, you know, is, they found it, but there is nobody alive down there. Which gets, <laughs> we're just retconned in, uh, the, the... <laughs> quote-unquote sequel, which is the first three episodes of an unaired TV series. In the very beginning of that movie slash TV show, Atlantis returns to the surface and, like, rejoins the outside world. Well... Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah, so... Oh, boy, don't like that. (laughs) I'm gonna make Stephanie watch it one day. But, yeah, so basically happy ending. Um, Milo gets to stay. Everyone else gets to go back and be rich. Mr. Whitmore f- knows that Milo found it. Um, yeah, he sent Mr. Whitmore a crystal. Yeah, and everything's cool. So, wait, does that mean Mr. Whitmore gets to live forever now? I don't know. And that's that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, this movie, um, again, uh, I thought I would like the subject matter. I thought I would like its, like, I did like its aesthetics from the trailers and everything. And um, thought I would like the characters, and I was right on all of those accounts. I really enjoy all of those aspects, but for some reason, it just felt like a slog for me most of the time. I just, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we might as well get into overall opinions. Um, so that's Justin's. <laughs> Generally, I like it. <laughs> Um, I can see how it could be considered slow for sure. Um, I do think that honestly, everything pre, well, let me amend that statement. First, I was going to say everything pre keto because I like keto. She's my favorite character. Uh, but then I was, I was going to say everything pre that is not that interesting to me, but to be fair, uh, I really like the campfire scene. Um, because I like character interactions. Um, so everything pre that is kind of uninteresting to me because it's all very, uh, adventure voyagey stuff, which I do like to be fair, but it hasn't yet given you a really strong reason to care about it. Um, but I do think that that happens over the course of the story. Um, 
it does kind of drag in places because a lot of it is, like we said, very, like, much the minutia of trying to find out little itty-bitty details, and it's never really clear exactly why that matters in a lot of cases mm-hmm. and um, can feel repetitive at times. Uh, I think that overall, though, I I do really enjoy it. And if I had to say why, I guess I would say um, it, it is, to be fair, in large part because I really like the visual aesthetics of it. I really like the score. I really like the characters. But I, I am also a fan of the narrative. Um, I, I'm always a sucker for an adventure narrative <laughs> and we we talked about this a little bit in our um league of extraordinary gentlemen discussion i have always been a fan of like classic uh proto sci-fi adventures like jules Byrne, king solomon's minds that kind of stuff um and to be fair uh this in in drawing inspiration from those does have the problematic undertones of you know kind of like these uh, colonialist narratives of like let's jump into this completely separate culture and just fuck it up with our <laughs> Europeanness um, and our Americanness, and that is to be fair that is examined a little more here than in the past. But there is something very charming about seeing kind of these characters from the modern or kind of modern world interact with characters from a completely different time and find common ground and kind of blend different forms of science together. Uh, I, I really enjoy that. I also enjoy, um, what did I, how did I put it in my notes? There's this kind of undercurrent of, uh, the, the alpha male versus the man of science, as I put it, which is interesting, uh, especially for the time period, uh, since it is set in that time period that we've been talking about a lot where there was a lot of, um, scientific information emerging and kind of like, uh, new ways of seeing the world. This kind of shows like the old uh, manly military guy versus like the scrawny intellectual. <laughs> uh, and that is that is brought to light a few times because Rourke kind of gives him shit for it a little bit. Um, yeah, Rourke really feels like like a, like a general patent type character. Yeah, he, he's really hardcore uh, and he, he kind of like laughs at Milo's <laughs> diminished physique and um, inability to drive a truck and <laughs> stuff like I'm that. With you, Milo. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I like that it is kind of unambiguously like, yeah, we don't need your like dick swinging American gun shit here. <laughs> like, we can get by without it. Thanks. Um, I, I do like that it comes down on the side of. Of not that. <laughs> yes. Um, Caleb, what do you want? I don't really have much else to say other than the score is amazing. Like I've said, pretty <laughs> much everything else. Um, it James is, Newton Howard it did, is a pretty big score. James Newton Howard did the score for both of these. Um, oh. oh yeah, yeah, didn't, he did. Didn't realize. Mm-hmm. He did a did a fantastic job. Oh, he's really good. Um. <laughs> solid seven for me. Solid seven. Sounds <laughs> pretty good. Yeah, I'll accept that. You made it sound a lot worse than a seven. Yeah, the way you were talking about, I was going to guess like five, maybe six. I I tend to like liking things, so even though I'm like, <laughs> I didn't find it that enjoyable. It's a, it's okay. <laughs> also, like, because I'm me, I really like the romance. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I just think it's cute because I'm always a fan of 
dork slash gorgeous person that <laughs> gorgeous cool person that is a favorite of mine uh genders be what they may <laughs> um <laughs> and i am a fan of that especially as a disney romance i really like it and i think it's cute and i like nerds so there you go that's all i've got to say about <laughs> yeah that's how we got it same uh join us after the break for treasure planet Hi everyone, Justin here. Thank you so much for checking out our show. You may notice some audio issues during these early episodes as we're recording them in separate locations during quarantine. It is our intention to record in person once it's safe, but for now, we work with what we have. Please follow the recommended guidelines, wear your masks, stay safe, and enjoy the rest of the episode. We're back from the break, and we're talking about Treasure Planet, which was released in 2002, the year after Atlantis. I've got some fast facts here from Wikipedia. Much of this I did not know. Treasure Planet was the first film to be released simultaneously in regular and IMAX theaters. It is at least the second retelling of the story in an outer space setting. And it... With a budget of $140 million, it is the most expensive traditionally animated film ever made. Which, I would argue, it does not qualify as a traditionally animated film, because much of the movie relies on CGI and deep canvas technology. Yeah. Yeah. It features Um, traditional animation, but... Um, I just want to say that the first time to do Treasure Island in Space was literally called uh, Treasure Island in Outer Space, and I want to give them points for creativity. <laughs> I, th- that's, I think that was literally going to be the original name of this movie. What? Because this movie was a passion project of Ron Clements and John Musker, who made many, many hit movies for Disney, and I believe this was their original concept <laughs> concept name. Um, back in, like, the 80s. Yeah, they wanted to do this for a while. A long time, and they kept getting told, no, go make us something else. Um, but, as I mentioned, other people have gone into incredible depth on that, and we'll, uh, I'll, we'll link you to their work. But for now, we're just discussing Treasure Planet, the movie, Treasure Island set in space. Let's do it. All right. Uh, another great cast for this one. Mm-hmm. We've got... A will baby. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I knew it was another person with three names, but I blanked there for a second. <laughs> will baby Joseph Gordon-Levitt. David Hyde Pierce, who I adore. <laughs> uh, Emma Thompson. Laurie Metcalf, amongst others. Um, so. Martin Short. Martin Short, right? Yeah, how I can't sorry. Because he's only in the last third of the movie. And he's, <laughs> and he's Stephanie's favorite character. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So everyone's initial impressions and or experience with this film? Um, I guess I'll start. Uh, So I've only seen this movie once before, and it was the year it came out. Um, Or actually, I guess it came out in November of 02, so it would have been sometime in 03. Anyway, I saw it shortly after release on pay-per-view. Um, as a kid Uh, and I remember I had fond memories of it I loved the uh, McDonald's toys uh, specifically the one of uh, Jim on his little hoverboard his uh, solar 
Sailor? I don't... They name it at some point. Yeah. Um, and upon uh, rewatch, I, I I dig this one. Uh, to me, this one feels like more of a uh, Disney Renaissance era film. Like, I can, I can see the roots uh, based on its creators. Yes, it absolutely should, because they made, like, three of them. So, Stephanie? Wait, who made three of... Oh, Clemens and Musker. Yeah. Musker and Clements. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's how it's usually said. <laughs> I was going alphabetical. <laughs> you usually would. <laughs> um, I had never seen this movie as a kid, much like Atlantis. Uh, I don't know. Did I also introduce what... you to this one? Yes. Actually, um, C- Caleb introduced this to me very early on in our relationship. And in fact, I remember when we started uh, talking, as the kids say, he <laughs> his profile picture was a picture of Jim. Um, and I, th- I was like, who's that animated character? And then I was like, oh, it's that kid from Treasure Planet. And I was like, I always thought he was pretty hot, even though I've never seen it. This seems like a cool guy. I want to talk to him more. <laughs> um, he's a guy who appreciates Disney. How embarrassing for you. No, how embarrassing for you. You're the one with a Jim Hawkins profile picture. There's nothing embarrassing about that. Well, I don't think it's embarrassing to like you either. So I guess neither of us should be embarrassed. Anyway... I'm embarrassed by both of you. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. So my experience with this movie was about exactly the same as Atlantis, and that I saw it in theaters. I owned the DVD and I watched it dozens of times. <laughs> I didn't see it until I think the first time was when we were on that choir trip and we watched it on the bus, and you kept quoting it and being really annoying. Right, uh, because I always brought the movies on the bus trips, on <laughs> yeah. the choir trips. Uh huh. Um, and I really liked it. It's very much my kind of movie. Um, I, I love both it and Atlantis because I love the combination of like, you know, uh, Disney, uh, story structure, Disney tropes, Disney animation with these like kind of out there sci-fi fantasy narratives. Um, I, yeah, th- that really appeals to me a lot. And, uh, I've been a fan of this movie since, <laughs> well, since I was a teenager, which was the first time I saw it. So, yeah. The movie opens in a very similar way to Atlantis, but not quite the same. We were open with the telling of the legend. Mm-hmm. That's true. From an unknown omniscient narrator voiced by Tony J. And love his voice. Yes. Gotta love it, yep. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> but the legend is being told in the form of a book that is being read by our main character, Jim Hawkins, as a very young boy. Yeah, it's an actual in-universe narration. Right. Um, um, and the book is narrating to him, and there's like a holographic movie coming out of it, and my first note is, if books actually did that, I would be the most well-read person in the world. <laughs> See, you say that, but how long is your Netflix watch list? Oof. It's not important. I'm going to stay silent because I'm ashamed. <laughs> That is cool, though. And it's interesting because it's like he's got this very kind of old fashioned bedroom, but he also has this crazy audiobook that like reads out loud and shows like 3D images. Right. We're jumping in with the retrofuturism very on. We're introduced yeah. to the Ethereum, which is this universe's equivalent of space, mm-hmm. except there is oxygen, oxygen <laughs> yeah. and living creatures. And instead of spaceships, we fly around in giant ships with solar sails, which my second note is uh, when we, the camera pans over the merchant ship, my note is, holy crap, that's a lot of sails. 
that ship has way too many sails. I don't know a lot about <laughs> ships, but that one's got too many. <laughs> uh, so, so, so just real quick on the uh, the solar sails and just the science in general in this movie. At first, um, I was very impressed because of them even bothering to explain where the ships fly, and I was like, okay, yeah, light sail technology exists. Um, like, I think that was very cool. And then it gets very dubious from there. Um, we watched this movie together, and I got real upset about how gravity works in this movie. And I still don't understand why he's upset about it, but... it you With, with this movie, you just have to take the science hat and set it gently on the table and not look at it for the, the duration of the, the movie's runtime. Like, because I think... Well, it's kind of confusing because it's like the movie is kind kind of trying to be scientific to a certain extent, but it's also doing a lot of don't worry about it. Um, yeah. So, but I think that's fine because ultimately it's not that important for the story that that we no. understand how the science works. No. Um, so, yeah, so, we're introduced to the legend of Captain Nathaniel Flint. Uh, who would famously appear out of nowhere, attack ships, and then disappear without, without a trace. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, that was good. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, we know it pretty well. <laughs> Jim's mom is coming at this point, is reading the book with him. Um, he is obsessed with this story. And so she tells him to go to bed And after they finish reading the story. And we get this fantastic transition to old Jim through like his silhouette under the blanket into old Jim riding his uh solar surfing thingy. Oh, I love that transition. And this scene is one, just super cool. And two, just James Newton Howard knocking it out of the park just right off the bat. Like yeah. the, the the score during the section is incredible. The the horns, the throwing the electric guitar in there too. So good. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> So, Jim gets arrested. Um, his mom runs the Benbow Inn. Um, and it's like the lunch hour or something. And the cops show up and bring him in. And so this is where we start. Meet, we meet his mom again. Um, he's kind of a delinquent teen. Yeah, this is the first for Disney. Uh, we got a whole ass delinquent teenager with a ponytail and an earring. Here. I know. Uh, speaking of the ponytail and the earring... The secondary animation in this movie is off the chart. Every time someone moves, like their hair moves, every time Jim turns his head, his ponytail and his bangs and his yeah. earring wobble. It's super that, impressive. That was a, uh, a note I actually had about Atlantis 2 was that, I, I don't know, the animation is really lively is yes. what I said. I, I don't really, I'm not really well versed in these technicalities, so I don't really know what all the jargon is, but... Um, there's something about the animation in both these movies. And to be fair, I think the animation is different between them. They don't appear as if they were animated by the same team at all, but, uh, they both do have this very, uh, this very lifelike, not, not lifelike, um, this very lively, this very energetic quality. Yeah. Um, they... The movements are very exaggerated, but in, like, a good way, because you kind of want that from animation. You don't yeah. want things to be strictly lifelike. You want if you don't to... exaggerate it, it looks stiff. Right, right. You want to see things flow a little bit more, and you want to see movement that illustrates character. 
And I think that was very true of both of these. Yeah. I think um, the animation in Atlantis was a little more cartoonish, uh, cartoony than the animation stylized. in Treasure Planet. Yeah, yeah. The lines were sharper, mm-hmm. and like the uh, character types were a little more exaggerated, like their bodies. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, and this one is a little more smoother and fluid, but uh, it's still very pleasing to watch. Yes, it is. It is very smooth, like you said. Like the the secondary animations, everything that's not the main features. There's just so much extra detail. Right. Um. I also noted that uh, yeah. there are hmm? constant. Oh no! Finish your one. I also noted there are constant facial expressions and like character reactions. So oh, yeah. Rewatching the scene where Jim is brought back in handcuffs and. Um, his mom and Dr. Doppler are talking to the cops. You can rewatch that scene multiple times, and each time it'd be like focus on a different person's face, and you'll see that like they're mm-hmm. actively being animated as reacting to whatever is happening. It feels like, there's very no, alive. there's no static. It's it's like you can notice so much detail rewatching it. Yeah, we don't really get to them until we um, get onto the uh, ship and the port where all the ships are docked. But I, I just love the uh, the alien designs in this movie and um, how they're all animated very appropriately. There's the ones that are supposed to be kind of like slimy and springy and they move right. And then there's ones that are very stiff and uh, clickety-clacky. Yeah. <laughs> it's all done very, very well. They have distinct forms of movement. The animation, I think, really... Uh, really illustrates that especially like with silver like he gets his this whole like three-dimensional uh form of movement that incorporates all his uh gears and gyros <laughs> a word and clicking <laughs> yeah and um yeah i i think it it shows so much attention to detail um yeah it's really good yeah any other notes about that part those parts no, no, no. all right moving on old billy bones shows up uh, ship crashes and his giant turtle monster comes out. Um, Jim helps him inside, and he turns out has a golden sphere that he gives to Jim, and he dies. Before he does, he tells Jim to beware the cyborg. When a bunch of pirates show up and burn down the Benbo, and we escape back to Doctor Doppler's observatory, because he is a noted astrophysicist. And he's just a regular Disney dog man yep, <laughs> surrounded by humans and other monsters. Dog man. Mm-hmm. And this is where Jim realizes, he, he manages to open the map and they realize it's a map to Treasure Planet. Um, Dr. Doctor tries to go on this grand speech and then, then Jim closes the map. <laughs> I love Dr. Doppler. He is a great relatable he, he, yes he's, he solves multiple purposes he's not just comedic relief but he is great comedic relief because david hyde pierce is, is just so uh, he starts giving this grand speech because he's got this perfect voice for like using big words and then whoop, he's cut off he's whoop, what just happened like <laughs> he's so good um oh, i love him he convinces jim's mom to let them um to let him charter a crew to go search for Treasure Planet. This is um, after uh, the the um, the Benbow has been destroyed by the pirate crew. Right. And so he convinces her that uh, there are worse things than a few character-building months in space. Um, it's like digging holes. It's great for right. building young men's character. <laughs> right. You make it take a bad boy, you make him dig a hole every day, and he turns into a good boy. You make him go find a Treasure Planet, he turns into a good little spacer. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, so... <laughs> 
Uh, basically, they <laughs> they con Jim's mom into letting them go. I really, 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 <laughs> really want to go. Yeah. And it's the right thing. Uh, yeah. um, I have a note about uh, that whole interaction, and it's, for once I wish uh, Destiny and Adventure would just be thrust upon me. <laughs> I know, right? God. Here it is, screaming! <laughs> yeah. So in right, the morning, and they just get to jet off out of here to yeah, go find treasure. They set off to the spaceport, the which, Montrezor spaceport, which uh, Justin said. Uh, uh, I don't remember. That's no moon. Yes, it is in fact no moon, though it is shaped by one. Which I wonder if that was a a sly reference. It's an aesthetic design decision. Yeah, if you have a spaceport hovering outside your planet. You know, why not, why not make it look nice? It's yeah, it is shaped <laughs> like a crescent moon. Caleb just summarized the Halo game. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Bungie, hire me, <laughs> or three four three, whoever doesn't matter. Um, so this is where we we, we okay, we get one of my favorite lines. They're <laughs> they're getting off their ship to the spaceport, and Doctor Doppler is hoping to like get closer with Jim. Um, he says, you know what they say, familiarity breeds, well, contempt, <laughs> but, <laughs> but in our case, <laughs> um, yeah, because he, he's, God help him. He is trying to bond with Jim here and Jim's like, no. <laughs> um, so then we meet, we meet the crew, um, who, okay. I'm just going to say it before, before I say it a dozen times, Emma Thompson does a fantastic job as Captain Amelia. Oh yeah, yes. she's so British, like she is painfully. So, the, yes, I. Oh, <laughs> I don't remember if I wrote it down. If I didn't, I meant to. Um, is there? <laughs> she Emma Thompson is more British than the Queen herself. Like she, <laughs> she is so British. And they throw in all kinds of like little like Britishy sailory jargon. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what did she even just say? Save that flim flam for your spaceport floozy, right. silver. I literally wrote down <laughs> spaceport floozy. Uh, uh, I was like, they just said floozies, man. What? As soon as she walked out and started talking, I wrote down the note, early 2000s furry bait. Oh my god, I know. And she's like, the cat-like animations are so great too, because they also wrote down like, her her pupils dilate when she gets excited, like, they go like, whew, like huge, like a cat. Oh yeah, her facial animations are, are so good, there's right. so much to them. Mm-hmm. Again, just the character designs in these movies are fantastic. Right, exactly. And I, I like the, the little thing of, like, here's a cat woman, here's a dog yeah, guy. Her first mate is a giant boulder. <laughs> yeah, he's just a rock guy. And a lot here's of, a walking fart. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the a lot of the alien designs are like uh animal mixed with person. Right. Here's a like... spider thingy. Here's uh uh a dog man, a cat lady. And wasn't, here's a meth so, head. Wasn't yeah, <laughs> the the one female crew member that isn't Captain Amelia uh, has big meth head energy. We noted. Um, I don't know what it is about her, but yeah, definitely there. Also, isn't silver based on like like a bear's design or something? I swear, I swear, I read that somewhere. I don't know. Like his um, his. I don't know, because a lot of them were based on, like, animals. I, I think I read somewhere that he's based on, like, a, 
a bear kind of a bear man type. yeah but like is he just, a, is he just disney using blue again <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a i don't different. think they reused the animation for this <laughs> <laughs> but but kind of kind of similar so we meet the whole crew we meet uh <sighs> we get a great scene in the captain's quarters where Amelia is uh, telling Dr. Doppler that she doesn't much care for this crew he's hired. I'll keep um, this as monosyllabic as, as possible. <laughs> I love her. So good. Exactly. Um, Delightfully to, to, condescending. To, to speak about the whereabouts of a treasure map. Within the vicinity of this particular crew, borders on the imbecilic. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just like... Argh. Imbecilic? <laughs> Um, All right, I, so, I love their, their so conversations. She, she sends Jim to be the, the cabin boy, and he's going to be under the, the supervision of Silver, who is the cook. Neither and of them are happy about this initially. No. Just, Jim recognizes that he's a cyborg. <laughs> I had a note here. I said the way they animate Jim's face when he's trying to be cool and edgy is fantastic. Ah, see, I he's wrote... He's trying to interrogate him... I wrote Jim is terrible at being subtle. No, I agree. <laughs> let me let me clarify. I agree. I think he's terrible at it because he's like, oh yeah, I knew a, uh, a guy who was a cyborg or something. He's like trying to be so so suave about it, but he he's very obviously a teenage boy in way over his head. It's very um that scene in the Dark Knight, where he's like, so <laughs> this your person that like you like you're asserting that he spends his free time and, beating up vigilantes and your plan is to blackmail this person <laughs> right so your plan here is to let the deadly pirate know that you know right, he's a pirate exactly like he, you just want to get thrown overboard i don't know what this man's thought his plan was but he's really trying here and um uh uh silver plays it really cool um just blows him off he's like mm, yeah don't know what you're talking about uh so they have that kind of rocky relationship set up early on because Jim's suspicious of him. And uh, I think at the end of this scene, we are given an indication that Silver kind of realizes what's going on. Is like, okay, you got to oh, tread yeah, carefully. He, he has the whole, we best yeah. keep a close eye on this one, Morph. Right. He talks to Morph, who is kind of his sounding board. Um, Morph is the little bubblegum alien. He is a fantastic supplement for a parrot. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's all he does is parrot. He just repeats what you say back to oh him. Oh my but god! He can also... I never realized that he's a parrot. He's... Yeah, me neither. Oh my god! <laughs> but he can say Good more catch. than his pieces of eight. <laughs> right, but whatever whatever they say, he latches onto, yes. and then he'll shape shift, and then he'll say. Wow! That... I never caught that comparison <laughs> before. Okay. Yes. You guys right. are welcome. Thank you. So yeah, Morph's cute. He's like he's very useful as a sidekick, but also he's kind of chaotic um, because he will just decide to do shit, and you just have to deal with it. Right. Um. So yeah. So Jim gets to go watch the launch. Yeah. Um, which is a cool little sequence. More great score there. Mm -hmm. Um. We see a whole pod of space whales, which are flying in a V formation, which I thought was an interesting detail for them to add. Mm -hmm. Um, I wrote down Amelia is morosexual. I don't really know what I wrote that in response. I think it was like something happened to Delbert and he got himself into some dumb cartoony situation. Was it when the ship took off and he like went flying backwards yeah, and hit the wall? Yeah, or something like that. I don't know if it was, I don't know. But anyway, she like looked at him at first. She was like, ugh. And then she kind of smiled and it was like, <laughs> girl, <laughs> you, you like him dumb. But um, so they take off. Um, um, let's see. I also wrote the deep focus question mark. Is that the name of it? 
is cool. Deep canvas. Yeah, deep canvas is cool because you get a good sense of the ship's physical space. Right. The entire RLS legacy is deep canvas technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looks great. Yeah, it, it looks pretty good. It doesn't... Mm, it's not fantastic on Blu-ray on a 60-inch TV, but it's not terrible. Um, so then Jim gets to learn what it means to be a cabin boy. Um, it sucks. <laughs> in song! Um, uh, favorite so we get part. So we get this great montage with uh, John Rzeznik's song, I'm Still Here. And my note for this... So this scene is a combination of uh, Silver teaching Jim lessons... And Jim becoming a better sailor, and uh, co- that combined with flashbacks to Jim's childhood, um, and how his dad was cold and distant, eventually leaves him. Uh, my note for this scene was: Do you think the academy knew these were flashback sequences? <laughs> <laughs> was Come it on, clear academy, enough? <laughs> get. But no, I actually. Um, okay, I had a note. Um, I never noticed this. Was, uh, I never noticed this before because I'm a dumbass. Um, when Jim watches Silver fly off in in his small boat, uh-huh. it triggers the memory of his father leaving. Oh. I never noticed that before. And then when that ends, then Silver comes. Okay. Right, so that's significant. Silver, yeah. his, his new father figure leaving specifically triggers the memory of his father leaving. Okay. Right, that's how. That's when we get it's the whole juxtaposition. flashback of him. Yeah, as a little kid, like, running off on the dock, seeing his father's ship sailing away. Yeah. And it's a traumatic memory for him, obviously. Uh, but, you know, of course, in the unsettled metaphors that Disney provides us with very generously, <laughs> uh, Silver <laughs> does come back and that, you know, is yeah. is foreshadowing. I had another note for this sequence. That's the, the animation subtly matches the song in an incredibly satisfying way. Mm-hmm. So it hits a lot of the beats that the song does matching up with the animation, but not all of them. So it's not like too on the nose or obvious. Um it's to the point that I wonder if they released it, like, maybe on Disney Channel or something as, like, a standalone music video. Oh, they absolutely video did. To, like, promote the <laughs> I would movie. be disappointed yeah. if they didn't. <laughs> Passing up a great opportunity like that. And it is. Like, Caleb has remarked, it uses the entire song, which isn't Yeah, most montages and movies don't use the entirety of the song that, you know, is playing during the montage. Um, they were like, hey, man, we, we want our shot at that uh, original song Grammy, so... Yeah. <laughs> you don't spend money on the Goo Goo Guys. The Goo Goo Guys? You don't spend... I will get this. We're leaving this in. You don't spend money on the Goo Goo Dolls guy unless you're gonna use it. <laughs> Stuck the land. <laughs> Thank you, Justin. What's your favorite Goo Goo Guys song? <laughs> The Google guys. The Google guys. Oh my God. Okay. So, sequence ends. This is where we get our first big traumatic, like, All right, this is when shit gets sea. dark, yeah. Um, there's a star that goes supernova and then inverts and goes back into a black hole. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a great testing of Jim's metal scene. Um like, he has to go secure the lifeline. So guess what? He knows how to tie really good knots now. So he can, you know, he, he feels useful. He is a useful part of the crew. Um, clever viewers will notice that Jim has lost his jacket and donned lighter clothes. Um, that is true. Representing he has a different his, outfit. His, yes, his change of personality, his opening up. Um, mm-hmm. And this is where we lose Mr. Arrow because Mr. Scroop is, uh, has it out for Mr. Arrow because he told him one time to stop fighting. <laughs> so apparently, <laughs> when you're a bad pirate man, 
and the the first mate of the crew that you're hiding out on says, "No fighting on this ship. Um, you just got to kill him." <laughs> he <laughs> you impugned have no your other honor. option. Yeah, <laughs> you got to do it. I mean, those claws have to do something. <laughs> These claws were. <laughs> they're not just, just for... <laughs> attracting me. <laughs> I was getting there. Dang it! You beat me. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. You weren't quick enough on the draw. Uh. <laughs> um, although Silver told Scroop not to do anything because they're trying to keep it low key until they get to the planet. Um, but so he dies, and then Jim gets kind of for takes it. the blame. Yeah, Mister Scroop says it seems his lifeline was not secure. Um, and then Captain Amelia, Amelia looks at him, but she, I think, I feel like she believes him when he says I secured it, but she can't give that away. Because then mm. she's giving yeah. away she knows that Scroop killed him. I think she is more likely to believe Jim than Scroop, that's for sure. Yeah, I think she may not know the exact circumstances of it, but I feel like she believes Jim definitely as opposed to Scroop, but just doesn't want to give it up, give that give yeah. them that information. I, I also noted here good exchanges of facial expressions because there is a lot of like people looking at each other yeah. with various levels of I know what you did or didn't do. Yeah, here. there's Scroop looking at Amelia, then Amelia looking at Scroop, then Amelia looking at Jim, then Jim looking at her, then Scroop Silver looking at Scroop and Scroop looking at him. <laughs> yeah. <It's> just... <laughs> Right. And each of those looks <laughs> meant something different. Exactly. Uh, that that was pretty good because each, yeah, like you said, each of them felt like they were signif- uh, signifying something different, um, and were relevant to the character. Oh, my question about this scene was, what was Mister Arrow doing up in the sails in the first place? He is the first mate. He yells at people and tells them what to do. He, he does not get way up on the mizzen mast and like where he can fall off and die. He's just checking, checking it out. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> also, he is a giant rock man. <laughs> please, please end your sentence there. <laughs> yeah, so this is kind of a rough point for Jim. Right, um, and the, immediately after this is when Jim finds out that, um, that, okay, well, Silver gives him a pep talk. Yeah, Jim's they have this nice bonding moment. They have then. this really nice moment, and you really, like, it feels like Silver genuinely know or is means what he is saying to Jim, but then he immediately has to walk it back the next day. Um, Jim ends up in a barrel because he was chasing a morph. Because as Stephanie pointed out, morph ch- causes mischief. <laughs> yes, just because it feels like it. And Jim hears about the plan uh, about the mutiny, and Silver is having to walk back everything he said to Jim. Right, he's trying to save face. He's, yeah, he's trying to save face in front of his crew. Um, because Mr. Scroop was up in the sails listening yeah. to the conversation because he's a stupid, sneaky butt face. Yeah, no one is sad when he dies. <laughs> <laughs> um, immediately after that, we uh, call Land Ho, Land Sea Treasure Planet, um, and th- that's the, a, they start the mutiny. They start because... the mutiny right then. Why was it? I remember why it started because. Silver went back below deck to grab his looking glass, and he saw Jim there. He realized Jim Ooh, had to have been there the whole time and heard yep. the conversation. Um, Jim, Jim knows what's up, too. So he grabs a knife and stabs uh, Silver in his hydraulic leg. And that's when Silver's like, all right, the jig is up. Uh, mutiny starts now. Cause, yeah, because they know Jim's going to go tell the captain. So they're like, well, might as well just go ahead and do it. Yeah. So, so my, question, my question is... 
uh, he acted like it was an emergency, like the captain couldn't know where their plans would be foiled, like, it's just Jim, Amelia, and, uh, Dr. Doppler? Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, it's not... At this point, like, they're not a threat to I know, there's only three of them. No. And one of them's a kid, and the other one's a, a useless doctor with a doctorate yeah i'm not a real doctor i'm not like a medical doctor <laughs> yeah <laughs> right but but all the same they're like yeah we're taking the ship um and they're holed up in the captain's quarters uh they grab the map see. they blow a hole in the floor and they escape to the longboat they escape yeah um morph steals the map his morph. morph likes shiny things, yeah. and he hides in a pile of rope and disguises himself as the map. So Jim grabs Morph, thinking he's the map, and Silver thinks he has the map. So they crash land on the planet, which I would have been fine with if they had stayed upright. But the moment the boat flips over, I'm like, they're dead, they're dead, they're dead, they're dead. Like, <laughs> they immediately realize they don't have the map, but the pirates still don't know that they don't have it. Right. It, it's the whole yeah. They they think they have the map. The pirates think they have the map. They realize they don't have but the map. But we know that they don't know that we know that they... Bottom line, the pirates think they have the map and they're coming after them. Right. So, Jim is going to go find a more secure position than an overturned boat. Oh, this scene is where we get uh, one of my favorite lines in the movie. We get the reversal of the Star Trek line <laughs> where, where like Jim tells him to fix up Amelia because she gets hurt in the crash and he goes damn it Jim I'm not a doctor I mean I am but not like a medical doctor <laughs> I can't do things I have a doctorate like you, you're just useless um but yes yeah, so because Captain Amelia got hurt in the explosion um and so Jim has to go off on his own to find a more secure position yeah and this is where we meet uh, another character who is a st- uh, stand-in for uh, actual Treasure Island character that I did not know this. The crazy guy on the island. Ben! My favorite character. Voiced by Martin Short. Yeah. <laughs> Him. <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie delivered that line with the, the avarice that I deliver like, when I'm talking about the Powerpuff Girls villain. Avarice. Him. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Um... I Sorry, just, avarice isn't the right word. Yeah, avarice is like greed. greed yes. The uh, animosity, yeah. maybe. <laughs> I just Pointedness. don't like this character. But anyway, go on. <laughs> uh, so uh, Ben has a, Ben is missing his mind. Uh, he was a robot navigator, a bioelectric navigator, um, and but he doesn't have any of his memory. Uh, ben, it turns out, has a quote unquote place where he lives. Um, <laughs> quote unquote. Yes. If you couldn't hear, I figured they could hear the quotation yeah. on that one. Um, so they go back there, and it turns out there's this trap door in his house that leads to like the center of the planet. It's just the miles and miles of machinery, <laughs> machinery running through the center of this planet. Not and a clue. No clue. <laughs> uh, they, um, before we go down there, though, tri- uh, Silver comes to negotiate for the map. I like the scene. Which, yes, was a great scene where it's a combination of Silver trying to convince Jim that he didn't mean the stuff that he said, which on one level he didn't mean it, but on another level he's also been searching for Treasure Planet his entire life and isn't going to let Jim get in the way. What's this? Yet. A has... complex character? I know. In my Disney movie? I know. What? My... Get him yeah. out of here. <laughs> I wrote down, uh, this is the most depth the character of Silver has ever had in any adaptation. Right. It's Like, I love Tim yeah. Curry. 
but <laughs> <laughs> wait what Muppet Treasure Island. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the only other adaptation yes. of Treasure Island I've ever seen. Me too. <laughs> right. And it's, uh, that's part of why I like the scene. Of course, I always love a negotiation scene, but in particular, I really, I really like the scene because... Um, There's more stakes to it than just the map. Oh, yeah. Like, you actually mm-hmm. get a sense of the emotional stakes because Jim is pretty wounded by yeah, he was like, the this betrayal. was a new father figure who, guess what, betrayed me just like yep, my first father figure. walking out on me just like the same one. And Silver, on the other hand, like, yeah, like Caleb said, he's caught between these, like, something that he has dedicated his entire life to and something that is very new to him that is still kind of hitting him in a, in a very sensitive place as well. Um, so you're getting all these conflicting wants versus needs from these characters, but it doesn't really end well here <laughs> because they're not at the point where they can really process them well. And so it, it ends with full on enmity. Um, gosh, how, what, what does happen here? I'm just going to pause it. That's a really good note that I didn't notice. And I wish you had been able to say. Oh yeah. I just thought that was a great character moment when, um, the right before the explosion happened, like when they went down into the black hole, yeah. Uh, there was the moment where, like, you know, Silver was kind of like shielding Jim, like, yeah, uh, like that. And Jim was like that, and he like looked at him to make sure he was okay first before he closed his eyes. And I was like, "Bitch, I don't know if anyone else saw that, but I did." <laughs> like, that's a nice little. Touch. Not being very <laughs> subtle here, like. Yeah. Mm. So after the negotiation scene, they jump into the underground tunnels. To go pop up next to the pirate camp to steal their longboat to go back to the ship and steal the real map. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so, so, <laughs> so much MacGuffining right now. <laughs> right, it's Jim, Morph, and Ben. Um, they make it back up to the ship, and uh, Ben is not quiet. So, so they have to do two no, things. No, he's they, not. <laughs> they have to find the map and disable the laser cannons so that the laser cannons can't just blast them off the face of the planet. Um. So Jim goes to find the map, and Ben takes it upon himself to go disable the cannons, sets off an alarm, uh, which alerts the Spider Psycho, uh, Mr. Scroop. <laughs> spider Psycho! Spider Psycho! <laughs> that someone is on the ship. Uh, so we get this crazy chase sequence. The with... Man, this shit's scary. Yeah, this is it, very... It's clearly inspired by Alien. Yes. Yes. Um, with Scroop chasing them around in the uh, bowels of the ship. Yeah, just yeah. Like, just when he like creepily lowers upside down. Upside down. Yeah, is he upside down? In my head, he's upside down. Uh, behind the. Oh the yeah. Spooky. <laughs> yeah, I like that sequence. Um, meanwhile, Ben's just like fooling around with the controls, making shit happen. Yeah. Um, he kicks off the lights, which yeah. was a, a great little moment where Scroop disappeared, mm-hmm. and then like that's the what Justin just said happened. Mm-hmm. Um, then he unplugs the anti gravity. Which annoyed Justin, and <laughs> uh, Jim manages to like kick Mister Scroop off into space, where he spent the rest of his days until he starved to death because you—it's not a vacuum. <laughs> oh, that's true. Ooh, that's somehow more horrifying. Of course, there's always the possibility you could get picked up by a random ship because it's like being adrift at sea. <laughs> right. But um, you know, instead of. Instead of being two, two, uh, two planes, you have an extra third plane, which makes your odds of survival. And it's much bigger than the sea. Oof. <laughs> your odds are not great. No, not great. Um, so we, we have the map. Ship's disabled. Yes. It's back on the planet. Mm-hmm. But the pirates have already taken over their, their little hideout. Um, 
Yeah, they've already captured uh, Delbert and Amelia when they get back. Right. So Jim manages to convince the pirates that they need to take their whole crew with them to find the treasure because Jim is the only one who knows how to operate the map. Um, so we go, and this is where we get to the giant door. The portal. Yeah. I love... The, okay. I know Ben annoys you a little bit, but I know the whole... <laughs> I, I love the one thing that he, he remembers, the, the, the buried in the centroid of the mechanism, mm-hmm. which, like... Is, that's cool. That's a cool <laughs> sentence. That's a cool phrase. Yeah. Centroid, centroid of the mechanism. Centroid of the mechanism. It's buried in the centroid of the mechanism. Um, <laughs> yeah, all right, fine. But it deserved to go to a cooler <laughs> character than Ben. So this is where we find out that um, this portal was how uh, Flint would... That's how he did it. Yeah, would appear and disappear um, at anywhere in the universe that he wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um, Jim figures out... That if he selects Treasure Planet on the map, it opens up a portal to the center of the planet, which is the treasure room. Okay. This is my final written note. Oh. A goddamn tripwire? <laughs> that's what that's what sets it off. That's what does them in is a single beam of light. Okay, one. Why is that the only defense mechanism? What if someone with a really long stride stepped over it as they stepped through the door? That's a good point. <laughs> I, I, it's only about, like, two inches off of the ground, right? Like, I, why not? Shouldn't the entire thing be covered in, in, in these lights? It's, mm, as far as mechanisms go for setting off this thing that destroys this entire planet and yeah. undoes the entire treasure hunting venture. It's very rudimentary. It's remarkably rudimentary and easily <laughs> circumvented. <laughs> It's that uh, it's that seventy thirty rule. Yes, that's true. Honestly, yeah, it does. Feel it's like a tripwire, something... but it's a laser tripwire. Yeah, something very simple <laughs> that would have been in a Victorian era adventure Jeez. novel. So I love the way this treasure room looks. Mm-hmm. Justin, what was your uh, your description of the treasure room? I didn't know if I wanted to eat it or swim in it. <laughs> it looks very delectable. I'll give you that. It's so shiny and golden. It's very pretty. I love all the. I love that it's just like an equal parts of gold and gems. Um, I know. It's just scattered on this. It's very beautiful cartoon thing, treasure. Like two feet deep. Mm-hmm. Um, so while the pirates are going about, Jim notices a ship in the distance where they find the skeletal remains of Captain Flint, which contains Ben's mind. Uh, <laughs> Literally, or, yes, his his memories. Um, so he gives Ben his memories back, and Ben remembers that Flint didn't want anyone else to have his uh, his treasure. So he rigged this place to uh, blow higher than a Calypsian kite. <laughs> right, and Ben remembers this at a rather inopportune moment. It's it's the moment that the first laser fires and like starts blowing up the, yes. the planet. So the planet starts exploding. Uh, Everyone realizes that that's happening, and so some choices have to be made at this point. Um, uh, well, I mean, to be fair, uh, Jim wants the treasure almost as much as Silver does. Like, it's not like he he says, like, we're not getting out of here empty-handed. He's like, bitch, right. I better he's have got, my money. <laughs> he's got, uh, he is fixing up uh, Flint's ship to drive out of there, right. which is loaded down with treasure. Before it gets hit with a laser beam. Yeah. That <laughs> and doesn't go too well. No, no, no. I lie. They were about to get out of there. Mm. I think only part of it got hit. It was still functional. But Jim got knocked overboard. Right. And Silver had to choose between the ship 
or Jim. And so he lets the ship go, and the ship and all the treasure on it is destroyed, and he saves Jim. I love a moment like this, can I just say. Uh, it's your want versus need moment. Um, except it's it's very... Uh, <laughs> well, uh, with every character that has their own storyline, they have their want and they have their need. They have the thing that they think they want to achieve, and they have the thing that they actually need for emotional fulfillment. And this is where it's kind of literalized. Like, okay, you want the treasure. You need to have an actual relationship with a human person, like, um, or yeah. an alien person, or whoever. You know what I mean? Um, a sentient Yeah, exactly. Um, and so that's the big uh, redemption moment is... Uh, <laughs> And it, you definitely get the emotional impact of it because you, you do see his face, like, and you see the kind of like, this is not an easy decision to make, like. Right, he says, um, blast me for a fool. Yeah, like, <laughs> this is not a fun choice to have to make, and honestly, I don't envy He literally it. gave up an arm, a leg, and his right eye. Right. For, uh, in the process <laughs> of searching for this treasure. Right, he didn't just give up years of his life, he also gave up, like, parts of his body, so... Uh, there, there's weight to that, for sure. You give up a few things, right. chasing a dream. <laughs> Just a few. But yeah, but he does save Jim, um, because that that's what's ultimately more important. And of course, Jim, I guess, like, he was just like, okay, I've already forgotten about the money. I just don't want to die. Um, yeah, the planet is exploding. <laughs> yeah, so he's out of here. They managed to make it out of there. Don't know how, because they were standing on a single pillar with nothing else to jump to. Um, but then it just cuts to them exiting the portal. And back to the planet's surface. Um, so the, the oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, was trying to like I was trying to like no, he's missing we're something. You were not. <laughs> nope. Uh, um. So uh, Amelia and Delbert have tied up the. They've gone back to the legacy. They've tied up the pirates in the brig. And they've come back to to pick up Silver and Jim. Um. But the ship takes some serious damage, and so they're not. Oh, it loses the mizzen mast, um, which is the backmost mast, um, and they're only down to like 30% power or something, so they won't be able to escape the planet's explosion in time. So, Jim uh, jerry-rigs a uh, uh, solar surfer. <laughs> he makes a fancy skateboard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the plan is to like go and open a portal back to... Uh, the spaceport at planet Montressor. Right. Instead of escaping the explosion by trying to fly away from the planet, they're going to escape the, the explosion by flying through the portal. Right. Which only this is only a movie released in 2002 could have the main issue of the film solved, solved by. I know. I made a note. Yeah. That. I was like, was this when extreme sports were still popular? And Caleb yes, said, was. yes. <laughs> so <it> relevant. <laughs> um, this is a great sequence. Very tense. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, with Ben helpfully yelling out how much time they have left before the planet's destruction every few seconds. And it's accurate. It is. It's in the, real time. The countdown that is given is in real time to the, the what is happening on screen, which mm -hmm. I always appreciate when a movie does that. It's a great touch. It's a great touch. Great mm -hmm. touch. Um, so... Jim's going back, and this is kind of there. Also, before he sets off on this little skateboarding quest, um, there's this nice moment between him and Silver where he's basically like, "Okay, you're this is your job now. You're the hero. You have to save the day." Uh, and I always like those moments, as we've discussed before. I like the moments of like the older person telling the younger person, "Like, all right, 
it's your turn now, kid. Like, <laughs> uh, and and so Jim goes off, and of course, all of them on the ship are pretty tense. Like what? And and a, a little thing I like here, they're all like, "What? This can't. This can't possibly work." Mm-hmm. And Silver is advocating for yeah, him. Yeah, he does. Um, like to to the captain. Fortunately, the captain listens, but right. she's, she's still reminding she's like, him. They're just like, "I'm still gonna like, <laughs> yeah, <you're> st- <laughs> save that for your trial, Silver." Um, yeah, she she still doesn't like him very much, but she does listen to him. And and they do take Jim's advice, which is good. Um, they they've all learned a little bit here <laughs> on their expedition. Um, so uh, Jim, it looks like he's gonna go down, but then he smartly figures out how to restart his skateboard by <laughs> he, yeah using the friction of the wall he's falling down next yes, to. Yes, because I don't know if you noticed this. Radically, the, um, the the thing he's using for the engine is from the laser cannon on the ship and he has to so it's not a constant pulse he has to every time he like hits what looks like the gas he's firing around of the cannon um and so what happens is it's a misfire the next round isn't firing which is what he does the friction and that sets off the blast mm-hmm. um which i think is a cool little detail and super easy to miss um and then so he activates the portal and they fly back to the spaceport through the portal and they survive. The blah, day blah, blah. is saved. The day is saved. Um, we get one last great sequence with Silver trying to escape on the last lifeboat and Jim going to confront him. Um, and uh, great character moments, just great little little scene. Turns on the waterworks, man. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Jim realizes that Silver really did mean all of the nice things he said. Mm-hmm. They really do care for each other. Silver tosses him some money to rebuild his mother's inn, and then some. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he morph and, stays with Jim. And Jim doesn't write him out because no. I mean, to be fair, Silver could have been in a bad way, like for for the uh, yeah. apparent crime of piracy, which is still a thing this in is, the spacey universe. This is very much a end of Pirates of the Caribbean. Yes. Um perhaps piracy itself can <laughs> be the right course. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. Where the like the they give Jack a, a head start or whatever right. it was. Um Right. And it's Which good. the the rest of his crew's gonna hang though. <laughs> I I choose to believe that Captain Amelia says pirates on my ship, I'll see they all hang. Okay. And then when they make it through the portal, all the pirates on the brig are like, We're saved. I'm like, Why are you cheering? It was either die in an explosion or die at the noose. Honestly, I'd rather die in an explosion. Uh Yeah, the only the only one member of the crew that really deserved it got got it the yeah. rest of them were still pretty heartless and brutal though there was there was a very clear delineation yeah. drawn between the rest of the crew and silver who at least had like mm. some qualms about some of the things they did still i hope their sentence got commuted to community service <laughs> and i'm just gonna choose to believe that was the case and i hope they put, and I hope they put meth lady in. <laughs> yeah she, she definitely needed it um, but, but yes, yeah, so it's, <laughs> disregarding that, um, it's a good, um, little ending here. Um, Silver goes off, he escapes justice, and we're all fine with that. Yeah, <laughs> um, we're fine with it. Uh, and... Jim's kind of got that catharsis that he needed, like... Right, the father figure left, but he got the closure before right. he left. Right, and he's... Like a man now, symbolically. So yeah. he do- he's not as much in need of that guiding figure. He's learned what he needed to learn. He's gotten what he needed emotionally. And as we see at the end, he still feels that presence with him. 
Uh, we'll, we'll, right get <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a second. On the nose. <laughs> yeah. Uh, We're not far from it. I, I just remembered that. I had, like, blocked We'll that get out. to that in just <laughs> um, a second. So we get we end the movie with Stephanie's favorite way to end a movie. No. <laughs> no. Uh, the end of movie dance sequence, dance party. I, <laughs> I hate this so uh, much. Jim joins the Navy. Um, yeah, he's a cop with now. A, yeah. <laughs> with, a, with a commendation from Captain Amelia, I hope. Um, sure. I'm sure. <clears throat> and the Benbo Inn is rebuilt. Uh, Captain Amelia and Delbert get together. And get busy. <laughs> <laughs> um, which, hey, Troy Barnes was right. All dogs are boys and all cats are girls. <laughs> <laughs> this does the exact same thing as Lady and the Tramp to the extent that I think it might have been a Lady and the Tramp reference where um, the the couple has uh, three girls and a boy and the three girls look like the mom and the boy looks like the dad, it, which is the exact same thing that Lady and the Tramp does. And I don't know. I think it's a reference, but I could be wrong. I'm open to being wrong. But anyways, no, that's, that's, that's I don't I don't know what kind of parents those two are gonna be. I have to say, <laughs> I'm not confident, but I do like them as a couple, so I like that little ending for them. Um, yeah, everyone's happy. <laughs> we uh, Jim looks up into the clouds. <laughs> yes, here we and go. And sees a giant cloud <laughs> that looks like silver, gleaming eye included, and then the song. Always Know Where You Are by B.B. Mac plays. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not subtle. Um, also, this made me think of the end of Van Helsing <laughs> with, <laughs> with Anna Valeria smiling and giving a metaphorical thumbs up to Van Helsing for killing her. So, like, this type of ending I already have issues with, but, like, Silver's not even no. dead. <laughs> Listen to the yeah. song, Justin. He always knows where he is. <laughs> um, I think it's more like, on a more metaphorical level, it could be like he still feels that positive influence of the kind of weird, twisted father figure he got. Or it could be more like a, I'll be back one of these days, but you never know when kind of thing. Like, um... Which is still a little sad because I feel like no one else is going to be as amenable to that as Jim is. So right. Um, but it is nice because it kind of reaffirms that you know this story was about Jim's growth as a character. The way other people in the cast feel about it doesn't really matter. Like it's about how he f- feels towards Silver and the relationship that they built. Like. And because he's a character that kind of exists on the periphery of society, like, the fact that that relationship can be affirmed by the main character is is nice, kind of, because it's like, he's not outcast by everyone. There's still someone who understands him as a person and still believes in him and in his goodness, because he saw that. Um, so Amelia might be like, <laughs> uh, I think you should hang, but... But Jim is our point of view character, and we see it from his perspective, and he sees a more yeah. nuanced view than that. Right. Um. So yeah, I think it's cool. Final thoughts? Anything you guys wanted to say but didn't get a chance to? Hmm. Uh, solid eight. Solid eight. Yeah. <laughs> I think this one has a a a very strong emotional core, and that's where it really thrives. Like, obviously, the aesthetics are great, and that's the other amazing part of it. But um, 
I think, yeah, this one has a very good um, coming-of-age story. And so many Disney movies are coming-of-age stories, to be fair. Uh, So many different iterations of the hero's journey. But um, this one kind of gets to the heart of what that kind of mythic structure is about. I think this is one of the better ones. It's also one of the more unique ones in Disney's catalog. Right. It's about about a... It's not just about a young person, but it's, um, interestingly, kind of a... a, um, a like a father son parent slash surrogate parent relationship ultimately, uh, which isn't that common in the Disney canon, um, and it's good because it kind of recognizes the childhood of the main character. Like there are a lot of um, teenage heroes and heroines in the Disney animated canon, but um, this one really takes a look at the fact that they are still kind of halfway between a child and an adult. Right. I feel like this one addresses that much more than other Disney movies do. Yeah. Like, it does the teen angst, but, you know, without laughing at it, which is always important. Yes. Right. I, I, I have zero respect for any movie or TV show that, like, teen angst is the is the joke right and and it does take it seriously like even when you occasionally laugh a little bit at jim like okay he's trying to be cool you still the 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 movie forces you to have empathy for him and it forces you to look at things from his perspective and understand why he's hurt and why he's being like this edgy like try hard you actually do kind of feel for him like yeah i might do that too honestly if i was in that position and it shows so much vulnerability, especially, like, for a male character. Um, uh, and a relationship between, now that I think about think about it, uh, two male characters, uh, which is not yeah. all that common in the Disney canon, uh, as, like, a like a father-son relationship. And I, I don't know. I really like that. I think it Especially really... as, like, the main point. Like, yeah. The Lion yeah. King is very much about a father-son relationship, but it's more about legacy. Yeah. It's very much like your yeah. father died. What are you going to do now? Right. The relationship <laughs> itself is not the the emotional core of the movie. Right. And part of what I love about this so much is that it gives us a not only a morally gray character, but a morally gray character who has a direct positive or let me say ultimately positive relationship with the protagonist. And I like that the relationship is is um, complicated between the protagonist and the antagonist because uh, parent-child relationships are complicated and that's not often something that is explored in, um, in movies like this. Uh, but the fact that the parent figure comes around and redeems himself is is really great to me because it shows that even when you are an adult even when you're in this authority position you still have room to grow you still have room to be as good as younger people see you as good as your child sees you as (laughs) anyway um yeah that i i really like that because of course as we all know i'm always a sucker for a redemption arc of any kind i love to see someone be forced to make a really painful choice because i'm sadistic apparently (laughs) but but it reveals it reveals character you know and i love that um and i love to see a complicated relationship be made accessible for for kids and teenagers um yeah anyone else I got nothing else to say specifically about Treasure Planet, other than I love it. <laughs> yeah, me too. I, I really yeah. like it. 
Yeah. I I really, I, I really enjoyed yeah. this one. It's really I good. Um so final thoughts kind of about our our point of comparison as a oh, whole. Our two our... movies tonight. They're it wasn't so much the plots of them so much as just released at similar time periods, kind of have similar feelings. There are a left, lot of sort of similarities. Right, here. left similar marks on the landscape or and some or more didn't leave marks. These are both um, what people would consider underrated Disney films, I think. Um, though they have, they definitely have a cult following. Right. I feel like they're underrated in name, and they're like they did poorly at the box office. But if you ask someone if they like Treasure Planet, they're like, yeah, man, I love Treasure Planet. Let me amend that. If you ask like an online person, right? That if you, we would be if you ask a millennial, with, yeah. if you ask a millennial if they like Treasure Planet, they probably say yes. Right. <laughs> Anyone I've, older might yeah. say what. Huh. Yeah, um, I, I think they made a lot of impact on our specific demographic, which is to say... <laughs> they did on me. Yeah, uh, yeah like younger millennials, um, maybe, maybe not all, maybe of the nerdier variety... Uh, the online variety. <laughs> right. It's it's. Well, uh, let me let me again be be kind of a counterpoint mm. here. Um, granted, I am a couple years uh, older than you guys, but I saw this movie and like uh, ate up literally. I ate the Happy Meals, uh, all of the marketing, um, and I saw it as a kid and I liked it, but there was nothing really that like stuck with me about it. Um, and I don't know why that was because I do enjoy it. It just, I don't know. It's funny. I think these movies are not that great for kids or how should I say? I think the, I don't know how much a kid, like a child would get out of Atlantis or Treasure Planet, if that makes sense. And I think that was part of the problem for both these movies marketing wise is that they kind of exist in this weird in-between space where they're not really that great for children, but they're not mm. like what you would consider adult entertainment either. Yeah, it's it's funny because for me personally, the there were a handful of Disney animated movies that came out around this time period that didn't seem to leave much of an impact for the Disney company. Yeah. But yeah. those movies ended up being my favorite Disney animated movies. Excluding Pixar, Treasure Planet, Atlantis, and The Emperor's New Groove were probably my most watched Disney movies, again, excluding Pixar, as a kid. Which, I don't know, that might put me in a minority, but if I was going to watch a Disney movie as a kid, it was at least a newer one. It was one of those three. It wasn't any of the... Um, I did occasionally watch some of the Disney Renaissance movies, usually uh, Hercules or Mulan. Um, but, I, yeah, I don't know why these three left more of an impact on me than Disney's more famous properties. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I, would, I was, yeah, I would, I was typical your typical Aladdin, Lion King, Hercules, Emperor's New Groove. Lilo and Stitch. I loved Lilo and Stitch. But I never watched it much because it was very sad. <laughs> but that's true. I mean, this was around the time that Disney tried to really commit to emotional storytelling and did pretty well, I would say. Though, yes, that can come with the after effect of this is so sad. I don't really want to rewatch it all the time. <laughs> 
But, um, yeah, I do think these movies both kind of fell into the trap of, like, it's hard to determine their audience. Um, it's also, well, I don't know. I guess if I was looking from Disney's perspective, I would market them more towards boys. But also, I think this was at the time when Disney didn't really know how to market towards... Well, I think they were trying to diversify their gender marketing God, what what even are these words? Um, but didn't really know what they were doing. Um, so it, it just exists in a weird spot demographically. But I do think it's interesting that these two came out so close together um, because they seem to show a real interest in uh, kind of diverging into a different area than they usually had done. Mm-hmm. Disney's usually been mostly... Uh, fantasy set in like kind of historical times uh, and to be fair this does take the kind of historical element but transports it a little bit into a more fantastical uh, uh, retro futurist setting like Caleb mm-hmm. said um, and I think it was interesting that they both came out around the same time period like right at the turn of the century um, and shows that interest in sci-fi kind of renewed and in fact Lilo and Stitch even like that yeah, did they come out with, the following year yeah yeah that deals with space travel aliens all that so there was definitely something in the water um that, so I was fine with that Disney water yeah <laughs> which I I don't know I I find very interesting and I Overall, it just makes me really sad that we lost the Disney 2D animation because... I know Treasure Planet is largely responsible for that, although I will say it probably had a lot to do with Disney killing Treasure Planet in like to kill off the animation studio because it was expensive. Yeah, if you watch the few uh, 2D animation outputs of the 2000s, the animation I is just so beautiful, so smooth, and it's like we we could have had it all. We were <laughs> we were this close. Uh, <laughs> it, it is really sad because it it all looks so good, and it's clear it was getting even better. And I just right. I don't know. I'm very sad that it's apparently is is not coming back. Well, that was kind of a downer note we'll to end that on. <laughs> what, Justin? We'll have a Renaissance. We'll have a Renaissance 2.0 oh, eventually. We, yeah, we better. <laughs> also, at some point, we need to go through all the movies of the Disney Renaissance because I'm a Disney Renaissance stan, and <laughs> there are plenty of comparisons to be we'll made. We'll get to it. All of which I have helpfully put in the Google Doc already. <laughs> um, Maybe we could do a little miniseries. Uh, I very firmly believe that we should do that. While we're teasing it on mic. So now I guess we're going to do it. (laughs) All right. um, Any last thoughts, gents? Uh, I like these movies. movies. Good movies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love these movies a lot. Um, I appreciate what they were trying to do. I appreciate what they did do. I, I don't know. I just appreciate them. And I hope that this episode will lead more people to do so. Yeah, sounds good to me. All right. All right, signing off, y'all. We'll see you next week. Good night, everybody. (laughs) Night. Thank you so much for listening to our show. 
You can find us online on Twitter and Instagram at SoundsFamiliar. If you'd like to get in contact with us, drop us a line at SoundsFamiliar at gmail.com. We'd like to thank our friend Chelsea for our logo. Be sure to check her out on Instagram at ChelseaBHDesigns. We'd also like to thank Shane Quick for our theme music. If you feel so inclined, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for new episodes. We'll see you next time on Sounds Familiar.